Our scripture reading today comes from Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Welcome our preacher up today. Frank uh, wanted me to introduce him. Frank is out of town. He is helping Darby, I think, move somewhere in Chicago. She's moving from one place to another place in Chicago. And so he's up there. He's, he's sad to miss this Sunday, though, because uh, we were going to get the opportunity to hear from Justin Anderson. He is... Um, uh, some of you may know him, some of you may not. He actually was the founding pastor for Redemption Arcadia and Tempe. Um, four years ago, he felt the calling to go to San Francisco. Him and his wife, Emily, and their four kids have been there for the last four years and are successfully planting a church there also called Redemption Church. And, and, and I think this is a great opportunity for us as a church as we look forward to our future, as we look forward to what God is shaping us and forming us into be as a church for us to also remember that we are a church because God called people's lives to, to do something, to plant a church, to start something, to preach and to proclaim the good news. We are formed by the history of faithful men, and we get the opportunity to hear from one of these faithful men this morning. So would you guys please welcome Justin Anderson. Thanks, Brad. Good morning. It's good to see y'all. It's, uh, it's been a long time. It's actually only been three years since I left, but uh, it feels like four. Uh, <clears throat> feels like a hundred uh, in some ways. In fact, yesterday was our three-year anniversary of living in San Francisco. And uh, it's, been <clears throat> it's been quite a ride, uh, far different than I ever expected it to be, far more difficult uh, you know, I think we had kind of these romantic notions of, oh, it's going to be hard, and it's going to be, you know, struggle, and kind of, I think, in the back of our mind, a little bit of a wink, like, yeah, hard for everyone else, you know, like, because <clears throat> we're awesome, and that's not a thing for us. Uh, so, uh, but I'm not awesome, apparently, and uh, it's, it's super hard, and has been, been uh, far more difficult than, than we ever expected. Um, part of that is because we've added two more kids to our lives. And so it's hard to know how much of, uh, of the difficulty is San Francisco and how much of it is the stupidity of four kids. Like, it's like, <laughs> it's hard to know which one of those things is actually the hardest. And so, uh, <clears throat> and I, I'm getting older now too. I used to be the young guy. You know, when I started Tempe, I was 25. When we started Arcadia, I think I was 28. And so it was like, you can get away with a lot more. And now that I'm 36, uh, I, I, I can't, you know, people expect maturity and wisdom. And it's like, 
that's not what I do, you know? So I feel like I'm working out of my weakness a little bit too. Uh, so it's been, uh, it's been crazy. Please uh, continue to pray for us. Uh, we're marching forward. Uh, this is a crazy time in our country. Um, and, and the epicenter of crazy seems like it's San Francisco um, and has been for, for many decades, but uh, I, I haven't had to live there before. So it is clearly ground zero for crazy. Uh, so please pray for us. It's really good to be back here with you. It's been three years since I've been on the stage. I forgot how high this stage is. Um, our stage in San Francisco is about that tall. And so I like this more. I feel, you know, better than you. And uh, <laughs> that helps. It helps me with my confidence. Uh, so I, I forgot how much I like preaching here. So, um, so yeah, we'll, we'll, just, we'll just start there. Uh, Today is Mother's Day, and, uh, and, and Mother's Day is uh, an important day in the lives of many. It's also a difficult day uh, for many. I know that there are many moms uh, and many women in general who avoid church on Mother's Day because of the difficulty uh, that it brings. Romans chapter 12 tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And so um, on this Mother's Day, I want to read something very briefly. Um, it says, we offer a happy and wholehearted Mother's Day. To the woman who is blessed to have a wonderful mother or grandmother or children with whom to celebrate the day. To the elated and overwhelmed mom who is snuggling a long-awaited child for the first time this Mother's Day. To the tired mother who struggles with the daily drain and mess of preschoolers who are ever-present and ever-needy. She needs to be reminded that her efforts are worthy of celebration and praise. To the mom who has raised her children, learned her lessons, and is joyfully sharing her gifts with younger moms. And to the many aunts, grandmothers, and surrogate mothers who have raised children as if they were their own, we say Happy Mother's Day. We offer as well a warm and quiet Happy Mother's Day to the mother who has miscarried, had a misplaced adoption, or experienced the death of a child, and doesn't know whether to stand or sit in church when mothers are recognized. To the mother-in-waiting who is longing for marriage and children, wondering when it will be her turn and why the journey seems so easy for others. To the woman who stands in the card aisle for 30 minutes because she can't find a card that respects that difficult relationship she has with her mother. Or the daughter who walks briskly past the cards because she's holding back the pain of no longer having a mother. And to the mother who is pained by the destructive choices her child is making and wondering if her parenting is worth celebrating. To you, we offer a warm and quiet Mother's Day. Let's pray. Jesus, so many emotions, and I'm not even a mother. I can't imagine the pain, the struggle, the conflict that's represented here in the seats this morning and in churches around our city and our world. Being a mother is such a thankless job. So rewarding, deeply powerful, but often so thankless and easily forgotten. More and more looked down upon in our culture that values financial success, ambition, and achievement. But so powerful, so meaningful and important. Each and every one of us has been shaped, one way or the other, shaped by our mother. 
So, Lord, I pray for all the moms this morning who uh, are excited, encouraged, who are struggling, conflicted. I pray that you would give them peace. I pray that they would turn to you with everything they have, all of their feelings and emotions, hurt, pain, and expectations that you would be the source of encouragement and joy. In Jesus' name, amen. So apparently I also learned how to cry in the last three years in San Francisco. <laughs> My goodness. Mark 4. Mark 4. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be able to just continue in the series uh, that you all are doing. It's, uh, anytime I go preach somewhere else, uh, a lot of guys prefer to just be told they can do whatever. I don't like to do whatever. Uh, I hate it when somebody says, just do whatever God puts on your heart. I, I got nothing on my heart. Just give me, just give me a text, okay? And um, so I've preached through the gospel of Mark twice in my life. So uh, it's especially nice when it's a text that I've already done a couple times. I opened up my notes from the last time I preached it, and it was actually uh, Mother's Day last year. It was the last time I preached this text. So uh, God smiled upon me, uh, and I uh, didn't have to prepare very much, which was great. <laughs> uh, this section that we're about to start is a series of stories uh, that are some of the most interesting, compelling stories in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, as no doubt Frank has told you, uh, that Mark is a fast-paced Gospel, not a lot of teaching relative to the other Gospels, way more action. It's, it's then he went, then he went, then he went, soon after, soon after, soon after. It's, it moves very quickly. It's a lot about Jesus' mission and what Jesus accomplished, and relatively little of what Jesus had to say in the development of his theology or his philosophy. If you want that, uh, look at the Gospel of John. That, that is a very little narrative arc and way more of his theology and philosophy. So in, in Mark, you see these stories that are these stories about Jesus' power, his might, his ability, what he did, what he can accomplish. And, and certainly implications for all of these stories um, are really relevant uh, for us, but it, he doesn't connect all the dots for us, which uh, is the job of the preacher. So I appreciate that, um, that he leaves us kind of something to do. So um, this next series of stories uh, demonstrates Jesus's power over uh, the supernatural world, over the natural world with people. It's, I mean, it's pretty amazing displays of power. Um, but this first story that I get to do is, is probably my favorite of this stretch. And, and not because of uh, the cool thing Jesus does, though it's insane what he does, but, but the way it draws out our humanity and the humanity of the disciples, um, I, I think is extremely relevant uh, for, for our lives every single day and perhaps even more so on a day like today. So Mark chapter 4, verse 35. It says, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took with took him with them in the boat, just as he was. 
and other boats were with him. Now, one, one quick thought on this. There's an interesting amount of detail in this story that sets um, Mark, really, and, and the, the gospel writers in general, but, but especially for this story, that sets them apart from much of ancient literature, right? So even in this section, um, we've got details that are, are kind of worthless details for the narrative arc and worthless for proving some theological point, right? So we've heard, it says, on that day, so he's, he's careful to tell us the chronology of what's been going on. So it's the same day as what's been going on in the text ahead of time. It says, when evening had come, he says, let's go across the other side. doesn't tell us why. There's no big so what on that. Why do they need to travel? He's giving us kind of their itinerary. He says, after leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. Now, what that means is, um, as Frank told you in, in the weeks prior, Jesus is teaching at the edge of the Sea of Galilee here. Um, and, and what he's done is he's gotten in a boat and kind of drifted out maybe 20 or 30 feet into the water so that everyone can come to the edge and kind of encircle around him on the beach. And he's teaching from the boat, right? And so he's, they say later in the day, he's been teaching all day. And there was this moment at the end where he goes, uh, they left and they left him just as he was, meaning he didn't go off the boat, back on the land, change his clothes, take a shower, get some food, whatever. He just was on the boat and he left. And you're going to go, oh, well, what does that mean? In fact, as I was prepping this a year ago, uh, I, I, remember, I remember that line just as he was and thinking, oh, there's something there. Like, what is that? Like, just as he was existentially, right? Right, Mark? You know, like, what's he trying to get at? And so the commentaries literally go like, yeah, here's what that means. Nothing. It just means he didn't change his clothes. It just means, like, he was hanging out with his buddies, and they had to go to dinner, and he didn't go home and shower first. Like, he just went. That's what that means. So it's a really random detail. And then later on in the story, as we'll read in a moment, it says that when the storm rises, Jesus is sleeping in the stern, which is the back of the boat. Looked it up. And, and, and he's sleeping on a pillow, right? And, and it's that level of detail that many scholars and commentators go, see, this is what, this is what in a literary world would be, would, we'd point to the fact that this is an eyewitness account, you got a whole bunch of details that don't matter, right? So everybody tells stories differently. My wife, um, who's not at the service, she'll be at the next service, so I won't tell this story at the next service. But my wife is a terrible storyteller. And it's because she gives the same amount of emphasis to every detail in the story and gets lost down bunny trails uh, of detail that, that don't matter at all, right? She's like, we went to the store and we went in the left door and we went in the left door. It was the automatic doors. And we, so we went in through the automatic doors. It's like, that's got nothing to do with this. This is a story about when you get home. Like, why are you even talking about the store? So this is that kind of detail where you just go like, why? You know, like, why, why do we need to know that he's sleeping on a pillow in the stern of the boat? Why does that matter? It doesn't. What it means is Peter, who's telling this story to Mark, who's writing it down, was actually there. That's all that means. He re- he's recalling this story. He's like, oh yeah, we were hanging out uh, on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus was in the boat. He's like, I didn't think we went ashore. We just took off with the, just the way he was. And it says in the story that there were other boats around. Like it was their boat and a couple other boats. Like who cares? He's probably just musing and remembering this event in his life. And Mark's like, all right, lots of boats. 
pillow, stern, who cares? Like, that's not the point. But what it does is it tells us this is an eyewitness account. This isn't written as mythology. This isn't written for a point. This isn't written as a parable. It's written as an account of a guy who saw a guy do a crazy thing. Okay? This matters if we want to attach any significance or importance to that thing, which it's church, so we do. Okay? Keep going. It says, verse 37, a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Okay, so you got this crazy storm. And, and I read the Sea of Galilee is at, you know, at sea level. It is surrounded by huge mountain peaks, like up to 20,000 feet um, it, within a relatively short amount of time. So you get these crazy winds coming off the peaks down in the Sea of Galilee. And Sea of Galilee still today is known for having these big storms that come on really quickly and can be very dangerous. Now, we have modern boats back then or now we do. Back then, they didn't have modern boats. This is wood. They're probably cobbling it together on the the fly, right? I mean, I don't even know what they had, papyrus boats. And so they're in these boats, and the storm kicks up, and these guys freak out, right? Which, this had to have been a big storm, because these are, by and large, experienced sailors who have spent their whole lives in this region, know about the storms on the Sea of Galilee, and they freak out. I remember when my family first moved here from Oregon. Um, I was in eighth grade, and we moved in the summer. And my brother and I shared a bedroom, and we lived down in Chandler. And I remember the first monsoon we saw as, as organized. Now, rain in Oregon, it never stops, right? It's just like a constant drizzle 365 days a year. Like, so there's no like rainstorm is like, whoa, that was a drop, not a fog, you know, like that's a storm. So when we came to Arizona and we saw our first monsoon, I remember me and my brother standing in the middle of the night, glued to our window, thinking like, okay, so when the house starts to float away, like what's our exit plan? Like, how are we, how are we getting out of here? Right? Like, I mean, literally the streets running with water and thinking like, didn't dad say this was a desert? You know, like, I don't, I don't understand this. So the fear piece of this, I totally get. The boat's filling up. What I envisioned my living room doing beneath me is actually happening in this boat. And so they completely freak out, right? Verse 38. But he, Jesus, was in the stern asleep on the cushion. Now, if you're anything like me, when it rains outside, I open the windows, I sleep like a baby. So I I get Jesus here completely, right? It's raining outside. It's perfect. Puts you to sleep. Verse 39, end of 38. They woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? (laughs) The the disciples are, if we haven't gotten this already, this this puts a nail in the coffin that the disciples are absolute drama queens, right? Like, (laughs) absolute drama queens. So that's a lens we can kind of see the rest of their lives through. Um, they, they see the boat filling up, the storm is, is raging, and I'm sure it's a big deal. And their first thing they say to Jesus is, Master, why don't you care that we're dying? I picture Jesus waking up and kind of going like, are, are you serious? Like, 
like kind of in a stupor, the half, of, you know, the, the kind of the parenting when you wake up in the middle of the night. So I have four kids now. I, I mentioned that at the beginning, but I'm not sure if you caught it. Uh, and I have four kids all under seven. Okay, so I've, right? <laughs> See, I say that in San Francisco, and they just go, wow, that does not compute. You know, like they don't get it. Like it, you at least go, oh, I know a family like that. Um, so it was six and a half, three and a half, two and two months, two months uh, today, actually, or tomorrow, I don't know. Uh, so six and a half, three and a half, two and two months. And so somebody's always awake, right? Like that, that's, that's just the reality of life. But you get that in the middle of the night when you do the same thing enough times where you kind of wake up and you kind of stumble and you kind of do something and you head back. And uh, literally uh, not long ago, I heard a noise in the middle of the night. All, we have three, our three oldest sleep in one room because it's San Francisco. And so we sleep in a, in a matchbox. Our house is this big. And we pay a, thousand, a million dollars a day. Um, <laughs> And so I, I hear a noise, so I get up as I usually do. I stumble into the room. I, I kind of, I go into all three of their beds. They have bunk beds in a crib. She's fine. He's fine. She's fine. I, I don't know. And I just go back. I'm like, they must have gone to sleep. Well, it was, it was my wife. It was Emily who had made the noise. And so, like, I, I get up to care for the children, but it was her. She's, like, coughing or something. And so I, I calmed her. I shushed her. And then she went to bed. Um, that's a good snort. Um, this is, this is, you know, I'm trying to paint a picture for you. I feel like we're getting distracted a little bit, but um, the, Jesus is asleep. His disciples are losing their minds. They come to Jesus, wake him up with the dumbest question they could imagine, like they had thought about. How can we ask the worst possible question? They come to Jesus and say, Master, why don't you care? Do you not care that we are perishing? And Jesus says this. He awoke rebuked the wind and said to the sea peace be still and the wind ceased and there was a great calm okay a couple things um jesus woke up drowsy i picked i I like to picture him not completely waking up and just being like shut up wind and it was right like that's the kind of power you know he didn't stand up on the you know on the other side not the not stern the opposite of the stern and um bow is that a thing i know and so he didn't get up like titanic style and do something like this or with the staff or whatever like he just he wakes up he says peace be still in other words like be quiet and be super quiet like just stop so he said not shout just just commanded very calmly be quiet and stay quiet Jesus talks to the wind and, and, a, and a, a tornado, a storm, the way I talk to my children. Be quiet and stay quiet for the rest of your lives. <laughs> Unlike my children, the storm obeys him. And it's quiet. And the ki- I mean, the quiet here that it, that's trying to describe in the, in the Greek, it's like a, a creepy quiet. Like, you know, like when things just go, and it's just like oddly quiet and still. That's what happened. Okay. Skip to verse 41. We'll come back to verse 40, I promise. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, 
Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Okay, here's how this plays out. Oh my gosh, we're freaking out. We're about to die. Jesus, why don't you care that we're dying? Jesus, be quiet, stay quiet. Holy. (laughs) What just happened? Like they thought they were afraid of the storm. Now they are more afraid of Jesus than they ever were of the storm. I mean, I imagine Jesus saying this, rolling back over to go back to sleep and them just looking at each other like, who is this dude that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this guy? And who is this guy indeed? Right, like that's the question. This is a crazy story and and an amazing, fun, crazy storm. Jesus calms it, demonstration of power, it's incredible, right? And, and, and it, you know, the moral of the story could very easily be like, Jesus is powerful, so obey him. Yes. Jesus is powerful, so, uh, you know, marvel and, and be in awe at his power and majesty. Absolutely. But Jesus' words in verse 40 point to something that, that's not dissimilar from that, but it's, the, it's our side of this story. Verse 40. Jesus says, why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? In some ways, this is, um, we, could, we could preach this sermon really simple. Don't be afraid. Stop fearing, right? Don't you have faith? Where's your faith, man? Come on, why are you so afraid? You've got these scenarios in your life. I get it. You got cancer. I get it, right? Why are you so afraid of cancer? I, I, I get it. You don't, you, you, know, you don't feel like you got control over your kids. They're, they're being crazy. But why are you so afraid of that? Where's your faith? Come on, mom, where's your faith? Why don't you trust God that, that your kids are going to be okay, that everything's going to be taken care of? Man, why are you so afraid that you're going to lose your job? Just, just have faith. And, and we could very easily just go like, hey, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Perfect love casts out fear. So if you really loved, you wouldn't be afraid. I just lay the guilt and the shame and the burden and the pressure on you to change your behavior and not respond fearfully anymore. And that's honestly what we've been told for most of our lives, right? You're afraid of the dark. Don't be afraid, man. It's just the dark. Look, I've turned the light on. There's no monsters. Turn the light off. There's still no monsters. You think there's a monster on the bed? Here, let's go look. There's no monster. See, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. From when we're really, really little, we're told, don't be afraid. It's okay. Don't be afraid. And so as adults, we have been conditioned to not act afraid. To, To walk out as if we got this thing handled. And it's supported by all kinds of cultural icons, right? All kinds of media and culture that backs up. We, we idolize these fearless people, these fearless men like Dirty Harry or Braveheart, William Wallace. And we, we have a growing number of fearless heroines, right? Like Katniss Everdeen is a fearless heroine. I'm sure there's somebody in Twilight who's redeeming in some way. Um, I, 
I'm not as familiar. Um, but w- we, we, we have all of these cultural icons that, that kind of walk out for us what fearlessness actually looks like. But what we know in the real world is that we can't just stop being afraid of things. Like, like fear, that moment of fear is an involuntary emotional reaction. Right? When you hear news that's scary news, your first response is to be afraid. And there's, there's not enough time in the, in the distance between you hearing bad news and you feeling fear for you to like get in there and stop it. When you come around the corner and someone says, boo, you just, you're, you're afraid. When you watch one of those terrible jump movies and the witch comes out you know, from nowhere, you just, you're afraid. When somebody tells you, calls you on the phone and tells you bad news, you immediately have anxiety and immediately have a pit in your stomach that you, you weren't able to like get in there and, and like, like sneak your faith in first before the pit in your stomach arrives. So if, if fear is, is kind of involuntary, if fear is this kind of just a, a human response, then what is Jesus saying when he tells his disciples, asks his disciples, why are you so afraid? What could Jesus mean? Is he trying to heap guilt and shame on us for being afraid of the things in our world? I don't think so. I don't think so at all, and, and, I've, and I've got some reasons why. One, the, the testimony of Scripture tells us something about fear. I mean, really from Genesis to Revelation, just the overall scope, the narrative of Scripture tells us something about fear, and here's what it tells us. Um, in Genesis 1 and 2, we see God creating a perfect world, perfect harmony, perfect relationship between God and humanity, humanity and each other, humanity and nature, humanity and itself, right? Perfect relationship. And then what do we see in Genesis chapter 3? We see the fall, right? So for those of you who grew up in church, it's the snake and the apple on the felt board, right? Like if you weren't following. Uh, it, it, we, we have a robust, at redemption, a robust theology of Genesis 3. That, that what resulted from Genesis 3 was a universally broken existence, that it still hints at Genesis 1 and 2. There is still much to, to celebrate. There is much beauty and there is much goodness. And there, there is much to enjoy about our world. But everything, every little piece of our universe has been infected, has been cracked, has been marred, has been perverted, has been sullied in some way by sin. So w- what does this tell us about fear? Well, it, it tells us that there are things in this world that are genuinely scary. It it tells us that there are things in this world that are genuinely dangerous and threatening. So to whatever degree you have in your mind that do not fear means that there is nothing in this world that can beat you, you know, the, the fearless icons in our culture are either lying to themselves and to you or they are soon to be dead. Because there are a lot of genuinely scary things in this world that you are right to fear. 
There are many things in this world that can beat you, that can kill you, that can destroy you. Many things. In the physical world, in the supernatural world, in the relational world. There are lots of things that can destroy you. And any kind of foolish sense of like, well, I'm unbeatable, I'm unbreakable, I'm fearless, is you about to walk off a cliff. So um, this, uh, this example won't work as well in Phoenix as it did in San Francisco, but it's in the notes. So um, uh, there's, a, there's a trail, a hiking trail in San Francisco called Land's End. And it, it's literally like the Land's End. It's the north west corner of San Francisco. I believe it's one of, if not the most western, westernmost parts of the continental United States, one of. Um, and, and it's just a trail kind of on the edge of the city. And it's just cliffs off the side. Well, I made the bright decision to take my children there. And so Cole, my uh, three and a half year old, who was at this point three, and, and uh, he, I mean, he's really matured a lot in the last six months, so that matters. Um, is, you know, he's in the stroller and we're, we're rolling around and he just wants to get out, right? Like just wants to get out. And, and the whole time I'm like, fine, okay, you can get out. He starts to run and the path is pretty wide. The path is probably as wide as this middle section of the stage. And I'm standing here by the cliff and he's over there and I just go, okay, you can run, but you can't get on the other side of daddy. And my son is not the most, I mean, he's not super athletic. And so he just runs and he's kind of just doing this all over the place. And he, he's good for about 10 solid steps before he trips, and uh, we're mildly concerned. And, and so I'm, I'm on the cliff side watching him run like a drunk guy and, and just going like, he has no idea that certain death looms eight feet away. So he's fearless. But he's not fearless because if he ran over the cliff, he'd be able to float and hang back, you know, and, and make it. Or he's not fearless because he's so aware of the cliff that he would never go near it. He's fearless because he's stupid. I mean, not like cognitively. I, I mean, I don't know. We'll see. But like, <laughs> he's ignorant. Let's put it that way, right? He's ignorant. And so he's running around completely ignorant of the fact that certain death is eight feet away. Okay. So fearlessness, fearless people are either lying to you and themselves, trying to create some image that would make you want to be like them, follow them, give them your money, or they're soon to be dead because they're ignorant. And they're going to run off the cliff not knowing it's there. So that, that's part one, right? There, there really are things in this world that you should be afraid of. And a robust theology of the fall, a, a robust theology of sin, informs that understanding that there really are scary things in this world. So, which leads me to my second point. Fear, then, is a gift from God. Track with me on this. Fear is the, is the thing that God puts inside of us that helps us to recognize the danger that looms all around us. Fear is a tool that God gives us so that we can recognize what's scary and bad and threatening and be able to have some sort of response to that to recognize, well, if I go near that scary thing or scary cliff or scary bear or scary coworker. 
I'm, I may not die, but, but I'm going to get hurt. Because, I mean, we can joke and laugh about cliffs and bears and, there's, and storms and illustrations, but, but many of the scariest, most dangerous things in our lives are other people who can hurt us, who do hurt us, regularly hurt us. And in many ways, fear is a gift that God has given us to be able to recognize scary things, legitimately scary things, and to be wise in our response to them. Okay, so if these two things are true, if, if there are actually scary things, like that storm really is scary, and, and let's, let's at least say this, why was that storm scary? Why are, why are our coworkers scary and cliffs scary and bears scary? Because we can't control them. Because we can't control them. Because they're bigger than us. Because there's nothing that we can do to manage them. And and that's our normal response to scary things, right? Is that we step in and try to manage and control those potentially scary things. And so when we really freak out, it's because we recognize, even though we may not want to admit, we recognize that there are certain things that we can't control and we can't manage, and so we run away from them. We lie to ourselves about them. We do a lot of different things. So when Jesus says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? What could this possibly mean? Well, the, the word that Mark chooses here is an interesting word in the Greek. It's used three times in your New Testament. And, and two of those three times are in this story in Mark and the parallel story in Matthew. The third time, the only other time that this word is used outside of this story is in Revelation chapter 21. And I'm going to turn there. And if you have your Bible and know where Revelation 21 is, um, I encourage you to go there. It's at the end. There's only one chapter after it. I just checked to make sure. Revelation 21, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. This is a picture of heaven. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, there's our word, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, As for murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. What does that mean? It means that the the word Jesus uses in this moment, when there's a crazy storm and his disciples respond to that crazy, legitimately scary, uncontrollable storm by doing what? 
by going to Jesus and saying, Jesus, hey man, love you. Um, there's a storm and it's getting big and, and we just trust you so much and love you so much and know that you're Lord over the storm as you're Lord over everything as we've seen you heal the sick and make the lame to walk and the blind to see and, and, and you, you've opened prison doors and let the captives free and you, you've done all this um, and we just know that if you just wake up and, and wave your hand, we'll be okay. And so we just wanted to let you know that. Jesus uses this word to describe a people who responded to fearful situations by blaming him and accusing him of not caring about their lives. In, in the midst of a very difficult, trying, genuinely scary situation, the disciples' response was to say, why don't you care about my life? Why don't you care that we're dying? Um, one of the things I do with my kids, and it feels like I do this a, a thousand times a day, is um, somebody will take a toy from somebody or will not do what somebody else wants them to do. We're staying uh, here in Tempe with my brother who has four kids that are my kids' age. There's eight children in one place. And, um, and, and so there's, there's a little bit of fighting that goes on. Uh, and, and so what, what I do over and over and over when, when those moments happen is I go and say, okay, hold on. Is that how we want to handle that situation? Is that how we want to handle that? How, how could we handle that better next time? How, how, what's, what's the appropriate response? Is that the response that's going to really get you what you want? Right? This is, this is what I do with my children a hundred times a day. And I feel like it's what Jesus wanted to do with the disciples in this moment. To go, okay, let's time out, guys. I get that there's a scary storm. I get that you are genuinely afraid. But maybe accusing the Son of God of not caring about your life isn't the way we want to handle it. Maybe there are some other options. Maybe that Jesus' words to them to not be afraid. Why are you so afraid? He's saying to them, why are you cowards? Why are you walking in cowardice? Why is what you're believing about the world right now that I am the type of person and you are, you're following me, so you think I'm more than just a person. Why are you acting as if I'm the kind of God who wouldn't care about your life? Have you heard nothing that I've said? Do you remember none of the stories? Do you remember, I mean, it's only four chapters in, so they haven't done everything yet, but they've done enough that I gotta imagine Jesus going, guys, really? Really? This is what you think of me. You, you think I'm the kind of God who either can't, well, it's not can't, is it? Because if they didn't think he had any power over the storm, had any power at all, they wouldn't come to, them, come to him with that accusation, would they? They would wake him up and go, hey, we need your arms to bail water out. But even the accusation that he doesn't care about their lives says, we think you're powerful, but unwilling to help us. 
Now, that's quite the accusation. Right, I, I, I heard, I don't know who said it originally, but I've heard somebody say, um, I don't believe in God and I hate him. That, that feels like it sums up a lot of thought to me. There's a, a rational or at least a confessed sense that I don't believe in God and yet God is who you blame when things go bad. And so I, I wonder how many of us today and throughout the last several months or years of our lives have been in a situation, legitimately scary, life-threatening situation like the disciples here. And instead of responding well, lashed out against God and said, why don't you care about my life? Why, why don't you even care that I'm dying down here? And Jesus says, listen, the type of person that responds that way is the type of person that frankly, according to Revelation 21, is going to end up outside of God's grace, outside of God's will, outside of heaven, because they're the type of person that does not give themselves to God, that does not entrust themselves to God, because they don't believe God is the type of person to be trusted. He goes, this is the trajectory for that kind of person. So, if Jesus is challenging His disciples in this moment, saying, why are you so afraid? And then connecting it just as John does. I don't know if you noticed, the word right after cowardly in Revelation 21 was faithless. Because the opposite of cowardly isn't brave. The opposite of cowardly is faithful. Our culture tells us a lie that there are two kinds of people, cowardly weak people and brave strong people which would be true if we had the power to overcome the dangerous things in our lives. But we don't have that power. The disciples had no ability to overcome this storm. Being brave in this storm wouldn't have defeated the storm. It would have made them die. Like just going, oh, I can do it. I don't need help. I can just keep bailing this water. I can just keep emptying the boat. I'll, I'll handle this. I don't need any help. That ends in death. So much of what our culture tells you is keep bailing. Keep doing it. If you just keep working hard enough, use a big enough bucket. you got a big bucket. You're a big, strong man. You just keep bailing that water out, and you will end up dead at the bottom of the Sea of Galilee because you're not bigger than that storm. And there's a lot of storms in your life that you are not bigger than. The opposite of cowardly isn't big, strong, and brave. The opposite of cowardly is dependent on the only one who is truly big, strong, and brave to the degree that he can defeat and has defeated what is difficult and scary and genuinely dangerous in our lives. So how should the disciples have responded? And how should we respond? I have four ideas. One, admit your fear. You are not unbreakable. You are very breakable. I am very breakable. 
one of the things that the last three years has done for me and, 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 and really the last year has done for me is to peel back in my own heart and in my own life a, a, a self-preserving uh, image of strength. I, I have learned in this last year especially that I am not as big and strong and powerful and unbeatable and unshakable as I once would have thought and hoped and lied about I was. And I'm telling you, the moment you can take off that Superman cape, the moment you can take off that image that you've been trying to build of this unshakable, unbreakable person, the moment you can take that off, I'm telling you, the burden that falls off is unbelievable. You feel more yourself, more honest, more humbled, more vulnerable, but you feel like for the first time you're actually walking in your own skin and, and not in, in some costume or, or, or some, you know, some suit that you've put on like a superhero. Admitting your fear, admitting your weakness. Man, I look at my kids. I know I'm using a lot of kid illustrations, but it's Arcadia. It's my only shot. It's been three years since I've been around somebody with kids. I look at my kids and I love them so much and I am so afraid of what they're going to become. My daughter, my oldest Lily, is so smart and so strong-willed and so opinionated and so nosy and is a leader in her class. And, and has, we had a parent call us to ask when they could schedule their daughter's birthday party because they were going to do it around Lily's schedule. That's insane. <laughs> that scares me so much. My son is, is I don't know what he is. <laughs> he, half the time, is an amazing, loving, empathetic kid. All the time, he goes, Daddy, you're so cool. And I go, I know, buddy. <laughs> he, he wants to be like me. He's all, we're twins, Daddy. We're, we're twins because we both have blue towels and we're both boys. And we're, I mean, he just, he's so sweet, tells my wife he loves her and she's beautiful. And then alternately is the embodiment of evil. <laughs> Running around the lobby of the church, literally punching strange men in the groin <laughs> and then running away. That has happened plural times. <laughs> I am so afraid for what they're going to become. I am so afraid of what I'm doing to them. I am so afraid of my inability to control them. I am so afraid of the life choices they will make. I am so afraid. My daughters, especially my oldest, is Beautiful. Not that the other ones aren't, but they're just babies. Um, is beautiful, and I'm so afraid for her. And I have no control over that. And yet I found the more I'm able to talk about it and admit it to God and to others in my life, my pastor, my mentor, to be able to just go, man, I, this happened, and, and it scared the crap out of me. 
I, I don't know what to do with that. But being able to admit it is, is, is you being able to take off the Superman costume and just being able to walk and be a human. You're a human, which means you're afraid. And that's okay. Number two, um, think theologically. Think theologically about who God is. I feel like if the disciples had had a moment to pause between bailing out the boat and accusing Jesus of not caring about their life and just had taken a moment, as I do with my kids often, and go, does daddy love you? Yes. Does daddy want the best for you? Yes. Is daddy strong enough and powerful enough to overcome whatever this situation is? Yes. So trust daddy. Like, I, I feel like if they had had a moment to be able to stop and go, okay, guys, does daddy love us? Yes. Does, does dad, do we trust daddy? Yes. Is daddy powerful enough to overcome the storm? Yes. Does daddy want us to die? No. That might have changed the story. Now, I'm glad they didn't because then I don't know what I'd preach on, but, but it would change the moment. And I think many of us have a, a, have a very shallow theological conviction about who God is and what God does. Right? So um, one of my mentors and godly men and men who is present, Tom Schrader, always used to say, what you know trumps what you feel. What you know trumps what you feel. Because you feel fear. You feel out of control. You feel like God's abandoned you. You feel the disciples felt as if Jesus didn't care that they were dying. But what they knew was that he absolutely did care and he absolutely does love and he absolutely is powerful. What you know theologically, what you believe theologically, trumps, doesn't do away with, doesn't ignore, doesn't mean your feelings don't matter, doesn't mean your feelings aren't real, doesn't mean your feelings aren't important. They are gifts given to you by God to make sense of this crazy world. But what you know about God trumps what you feel in that moment of abandonment. Think theologically. Number three, remember the stories. Remember the stories, both biblical stories of Jesus in moments like this. Remember this story. Remember the story of Jesus healing the paralytic, feeding the 5,000. Remember the stories, but then remember the stories in your own life. I I believe, and I got no verses to back this up, but I believe one of Satan's greatest uh, weapons against us is to make us forget about all of the graces that God has given us. We forget. God shows up, helps us, we don't die, we don't starve, we, you know, losing our job isn't the worst thing in the end of the world, and then the next time that might be the case, we freak out again as if God didn't take care of us that time, and that time, and that time, and that time, and that time. Remember the stories. God cares for you. He has cared for you, not just knowing that theologically, but remembering when he has actually done that for you. And then lastly, Live as if God can handle it. Um, There is uh, a neighborhood in San Francisco called the Mission. And the Mission is becoming this like cool, gentrifying hipster spot, um, which in some ways makes it more dangerous than what it was, which was a ghetto. Uh, But 
there are parts of the mission that are still very, very dangerous. And, and when you walk through them at night, uh, they're, they're scary. They're, they are dangerous and scary. Um, but I, I, I had a, a friend in San Francisco who is a police officer, works vice for SFPD. And when I walk through the mission, even the sketchy parts of the mission, with my friend Al, the, the mission isn't any less scary. I mean, there's still the same amount of stuff. In fact, and he's in plain clothes, so nobody knows that he's a cop. But when I walk through the mission with Al, I'm not nearly as afraid as I am when I'm walking through the mission by myself. Is it because the mission's changed? No. Is it because it's less dangerous? No. Is it because I got stronger? Well, yeah. (laughs) But is it because I I am better equipped to handle the the danger? Not at all. It's because I'm with Al. A hundred percent of the difference is Al. Zero percent of the difference is me. I did not, I am more brave, but not brave because of myself. I'm brave because of Al. I know that when sketchiness begins to arise, I will go from walking beside Al to stepping behind Al and crouching in the fetal position. That's how brave I am. I'm not any more able. I'm just with Al. And so you know what? I walk with a little more swagger through the mission. Usually I walk like this through the mission. And when I'm with Al, I'm like, hey, what's up? It's my buddy Al. Maybe you've met him if you've gone to prison, you know? Like, (laughs) it's my boy. Al is what Jesus offers. If the disciples had stopped, admitted they were afraid, and gone, guys, this is a pretty scary situation. So scary. I'm scared. You're scared. We're all scared. Okay? And gone to Jesus and said, Jesus, we're afraid. We're afraid because there's a big storm and, you know, the boat's filling up and and we're really afraid that we're going to die. And if they'd gone to him and said, hey, we remember, we we think theologically, we know you're big, we know you're strong, we know that you can care for, we know that you do care for us, you created us, you sustain us, you're going to save us, you're our God, We, we know that about you. And we remember the stories. We remember that, that just uh, you know, a, a chapter or so ago, you healed a man with a withered hand. That you uh, are casting out demons. That you cleansed a leper. That you healed a paralytic. That you overcame temptation from Satan. That you were baptized and a dove descended and God spoke from heaven. We remember all that stuff. And so because of that, we just want you to know we're afraid. We're in a dangerous situation. But we know we're okay because we're with you. It doesn't mean the storm goes away necessarily. Because here's, here's the tempting part of this. And, and what you might hear about a story like this is, if you do X, Y, and Z, then Jesus will definitely take away your storm. Is that true? It's not true. It's not true at all. Walking with Jesus doesn't mean the mission gets any safer. It doesn't mean the cancer necessarily gets healed. It doesn't mean that your son or daughter will for sure return home. It doesn't mean that you will keep your job. It doesn't mean any of that. It just means that you can walk through danger with the confidence that you are cared for, loved, and protected. 
that there is someone standing right next to you who cares for you, loves you more than you care for or love yourself, who cares for your son or daughter more than you do, and actually has the power to do something about it. It's not a guarantee that the storms go away. It's not a guarantee that everything's going to be happy and fantastic. So this story doesn't guarantee that the storms will go away in our lives, but it does guarantee us that we walk with or can walk with and can serve the kind of God who can make the storms go away. The story of Lazarus is a, a, an interesting one for me, and I, I don't want to ruin any future stories for Frank, um, but I think it's a good way to wrap this up. Jesus' friend Lazarus dies, right? Jesus walks up to Lazarus' home after he's dead. His sisters come out um, to say, if you'd have been here, he, he would, he'd still be alive. And he weeps. Jesus weeps. And the second sister comes out. If you'd been here, he would still be alive. And what does Jesus do? He walks in the house, raises Lazarus from the dead. Amazing. Jesus has the power to raise people from the dead. That's insane. There's no, there's no equal amount of power. But you know what happened to Lazarus sometime later? He died for good. Like Lazarus is dead today. Okay, so did Jesus show up and do an amazing thing? Yeah. Do people still suffer and die? Yeah. What Jesus promises is that he is powerful enough to walk us through regardless of whether that path leads to safety and and overcoming that danger or if the promise is that Jesus is going to walk with us through the danger. That's the promise. So when we look at this story and think about who Jesus is, and who we are, and the life that we have laid out for us. I want us to remember those four things as we engage constantly, over and over, all of the dangerous and legitimately scary things in this world. Admit your fear to God and others. Think theologically. Who is God, and what does he do? Remember the stories, both the biblical stories and the stories in your own life, and live, walk, as if God has got it. Come Come what may, there's nobody you would want to walk with through it more than God. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this church, all that you have done and are doing through its ministry. Jesus, thank you for how you're um, at work in uh, this city through them. And Lord, all of it is because you are big and strong and capable and loving and gracious. Not because we are. Jesus, I pray that you would free us up to admit that we can't handle it. That you would take that burden off of our shoulders. I pray for the fathers in this room who have bought the lie that they have to be the strong ones for their family. I pray that they would admit that that's a farce and a joke and a dead-end road, that none of us are strong enough. We all need you. I pray, Lord, for the mothers in the family who have taken that same role to be the strong one, 
to be the spiritual one, to be the one that cares for the family through hard times. Lord, I pray that we would relinquish the role that only you can handle. You are Lord of the storm, and we can never be. Lord, I pray that we would remember who you are, that we would stop ourselves in the moment when we want to just react and be consumed by the fear and driven by the fear, that we would pause and remember you are Lord of the storm. And you can stop it with a word. I pray that we would remember these stories and the many, many times that you have shown up in our own storms. And Lord, I pray that we would walk with the kind of confidence that comes from humility. Confidence in you, in your power, your goodness, your grace, not in our strength. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.